thanks for coming. And I want to start with uh, two days ago, I got an email from a friend who sent me, maybe in preparation for this talk, sent me a series of jokes that uh, astrological jokes, and they were zodiacal in nature. And it was basically, how many of your sun sign does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> and I only remember two of those. And one was, uh, for Aries, just one, what do you want to make of it? And the other, <laughs> and the other was Capricorn. The answer was, uh, I don't have time for these foolish jokes. <laughs> now, I mean, that's, they're, they're kind of funny. But the point is, that's really the level at which most people understand astrology and the zodiac. And probably everybody here has an understanding of their sun sign. And probably everybody here, especially here, knows that there are 12 signs. And, Yet, what is the zodiac? What are the 12 signs, really? And I want to go back to a story I've told many times here about when I was first learning astrology. Uh, there was a woman, uh, Maureen Cleary, who had been at the University of Chicago, a psychologist, and she gave it up, really, to become a full-time astrologer, a very brilliant woman, still alive on the north side of Chicago. And... Uh, I took classes with her at Columbia College. I was getting some adjunct credits at Columbia, and I decided to take this class. I was 21 at the time. And as she laid out the, the principles of astrology and the zodiac in particular, the thing that struck me as she spoke about this, and as I saw the perfection of this system, I thought to myself that no human mind could have come up with this. It was just too perfect. There were too many connections, too many layers of meaning with it. It just seemed like it was something transcendental almost in its, in its meaning. Uh, there were like these layers of the subsurface symbols that, that interconnected with the different signs, and that's, that really stuck with me all these years. Now, it raises a question for me. It raised the question then. It raises it still for me now, which is, was the Zodiac invented or discovered? In other words, was the Zodiac just something that was conjured up by people in the human imagination and projected onto the sky with no meaning beyond that? Or does it really tap into something beyond the human mind, something more transcendental, something even divine, if you want to put it that way? And what I want to do here tonight is talk a little bit about some possible ways of looking at this and go over some of the reasons why I think that it has some deeper meaning beyond just, let's say, a psychological quality, a random set of meanings that people came up with. And to do that, I need to go a little bit first into the history of the Zodiac, not too much, just a little bit, to, to lay out how it evolved as best as we understand it. We really don't understand everything about the history of the Zodiac. It's very sparse in terms of the information. We can say some things about it, and I'll go over those. Uh, but I, I should first mention that the history of the zodiac isn't synonymous with the history of astrology. And what I mean by that is that astrology involves many different elements here. These are some of the things that an average astrologer now might use when they look at a chart. And we take these things for granted when we when we construct the chart and interpret the chart, zodiac houses, aspects, planets, asteroids, elements, etc., on down the line. And these are just a few of them. These aren't all of them. And these arose at different times in history through different cultures, at um, Persian, Greek, Egyptian, 
Babylonian, European, etc., Arabic. And the zodiac is just one of these elements here. It's not, you know, you can do astrology without the zodiac, believe it or not. I know people that do horoscopes where they don't even look at the signs. I, I don't understand that attitude. And there's two different kinds of signs, the sidereal zodiac and the tropical. I'm not going to get into that tonight. It's too technical. But you can actually do it on a horoscope without understanding the 12 signs. You can talk about the planetary aspects by themselves. But what I want to talk about here really is the, the zodiac tonight because the history of the zodiac, like I said, we just don't know exactly when or where it started. And I don't know if I trust, frankly, the academic dogma about some of these things when they say it began at this point or that because I think that the first time something shows up in history isn't necessarily the first time it really originated. That happens all the time in, in uh, archaeology and, and academia where something turns up like the uh, Antikythera mechanism. I think that's how it's pronounced where they found out that this extraordinary device was being used before Christ that uh, involved gears, and it might have been designed by Archimedes, although it came after Archimedes. And until we found that one device, we didn't really understand the extent of the knowledge back in those days in Greece. And by the same token, we may find something out in the next few years or decades that changes our understanding of the zodiac. But having said that, we can say that the different signs, as far as we understand, it doesn't seem as though the zodiac arose all at the same time. Some of the signs seem to have a much longer history than others. For example, Gemini, Cancer, uh, Taurus. For instance, this is the constellation of Taurus. You can't make much of it in a photograph, but eventually, uh, quite a long time ago, people started to project a bull on that, at least in the Western cultures, in the Middle Eastern cultures. And that's a slightly more elaborate version of it. Now, some people believe that you can go back further. We'll talk in a moment about Babylonia and how the Zodiac arose supposedly in the, in the Babylonian culture. But there are some people that believe, uh, Frank Edge, Michael Rappengluck, and a few others believe that if you go back to the caves of Lascaux, you see that some of the uh, pictures on the ceiling are actually constellation drawings. And one of the more obvious possibilities is, and that's roughly 15,000 years ago. That's quite a bit before the conventional dating of the Zodiac. It's very controversial. I'm not saying this is the absolute truth. It's just the way some of these researchers are suggesting it, that the constellations may go back that, some of the constellations may go back that far. But in terms of when the zodiac we're familiar with came together, that seems to be Babylon. Uh, the first recorded evidence we have of the Babylonian 12 sign zodiac is about 475 BC. But some of the signs came up much sooner, much earlier than that. So this is the region we're talking about here in the roughly the time frame when the 12 signs seem to congeal into a, a formal zodiac. Now, this is from about 1000 BC, BCE. This is a list of constellations and stars that the, um, that we find from Babylon. What I've done is I've marked the ones in red that are known constellations that you might be familiar with. So, for example, 
See, they didn't just look at the constellations along the ecliptic. I'll explain that in a second. They looked at all the constellations in the visible sky. And this is called the Mulapin record. And so we've got, uh, this is Taurus here. That's Gemini. That's Cancer. That's Leo. That's Virgo. That's Libra. Scorpio. um, Sagittarius. Capricorn. Aquarius. And interestingly, Pisces at that point looks like it was at 1000 B.C., divvied up into two different signs uh, because of the length of the constellation, which is very big. And Aries at that point, in this translation, is called the agrarian worker. In other translations, it's called the hired hired man, I believe, because some, that did change. I'll explain why in a second. But this is the band <laughs> along the ecliptic. Excuse me, the path of the of the sun and the moon through the sky carves out this band of the ecliptic. And so you have these 12 projected signs that the Babylonians saw in the sky. And, well, before I get ahead of that there, uh, so that was by 475 pretty well congealed. But there was uh, influx of other cultures coming in there. You had uh, the Egyptians starting, I think it was around 671 in the 6th century B.C. or so, you had the Egyptians and the uh, Babylonians cross-pollinating their ideas. And the Egyptians had certain things that the uh, astrologers in Babylon didn't have and vice versa. So, for example, this is a star chart that goes back to about 1473. It's about three, three or four hundred years earlier than the star chart that I showed you before that was from Babylon. And the Egyptians were very keen on looking at stars more than the planets. And when the Assyrians conquered Egypt around 671, I believe it was, I'll double check that, what happened is that the Babylonian astrologers wound up taking from the Egyptians the sign of Aries as the ram. They did not have the ram supposedly before the Egyptians entered the picture. And the Egyptians, this is from the ceiling of uh, Dendera. If you've ever been, has anybody here, how many people have been to the Temple of Dendera in Egypt? This is on one of the ceilings, but the French came along and helped themselves to this ceiling image and shipped it off to the Louvre and now there's a plaster replica in the ceiling of the Temple of Dendera and you can see it a little more clearly in this version here. See the Egyptians took, in green here you see the zodiacal signs that the uh, Babylonians had come up with and but what the Egyptians had that the Babylonians didn't have was this very elaborate star encyclopedia, you might say, 36 deacons. They divvied up the year into 10-degree segments, 36 10-degree segments. You can see them all the way around here. Each one is a star pattern. And that got incorporated into our zodiac. Well, those stars became translated into planetary rulers at some point. But um, So that came from the Babylonians, also the uh, from the Egyptians to the Babylonians. And like I said, the Egyptians gave them the ram symbol. The ram seems to go back pretty far into Egyptian history. Now, something else that the Egyptians might have 
given us. Uh, a colleague of mine, Joanne Kahneman, who wrote a very interesting book called Ancient Egyptian Sky Lore, I believe is the title. She goes into the Dendrozodiac quite a bit. She also makes the argument that we might have gotten natal astrology from the Egyptians because there are hieroglyphic texts going back thousands of years that talk about how fate is determined at the moment of birth which is an idea that you see in the Egyptian records. You don't see that in the Babylonian records until much, much later, until you know, the three or 400 B.C. And um, Well, so the point is, by around the time of Christ, you have the zodiac that we're now familiar with. It had come together by that point to such a degree that it would hardly change at all in the next 2,000 years. So, for example, let's go through some samples, of, some examples of the Egyptian, uh, Babylonian, Greco-Roman zodiac. This is in a Jewish temple from about 500 A.D. or so. This is from Israel. That's the zodiac. It's the same zodiac you can recognize for us right now. Now, this is an Arabic zodiac from around the 13th century. Then we have, this is Chart Cathedral. It's, when you go back into Christian history, it's pretty astonishing how much the zodiac factors into the various icons of the, uh, the Christian church. So, for instance, you go inside the Chart Cathedral. This relates to Capricorn. These are allied symbols. They have all these different signs in the stained glass windows. Uh, this one is for Aquarius. That one's for obviously for Pisces. Now, this is from Canterbury Cathedral. This is from around 1200, if I remember correctly. And the various signs are in the, on the floor of the um, Canterbury uh, Cathedral. This is from around, this is by a Venetian sailor from around 1400, 1430 or 1450 in that ballpark. Name. His name was Michael Rhodes, and he did this diagram of the zodiac showing the body symbols in terms of what parts of the body relate to the zodiac. And we're going to get into that a little bit more in a little bit here. Um, then we come up to, in Prague, this dates back to around 11 or 1200. It's a zodiac clock. You can see it a little more closely here. Uh, there are the signs. And this is from around 1510 or so, 1515. This is the famous Albrecht Durer image that we started with. And this is the whole sky, mind you. The, you can see that the... Like you have the individual zodiac, it's a little hard to see in here, but the zodiacal signs, constellations are in there. But like the ancient uh, Chaldeans and the Egyptians, they were looking at the entire sky. Now, this brings us back to my question. Oh, this is, by the way, a modern Israel. This is a modern church in Israel. So you still see this sometimes in current, and by current I mean the last 50 years, churches. This brings us back to the question, was the Zodiac invented or discovered? Was it really something that that humans just imagined or does it tap into something deeper? And the way I want to approach this is to go over some of the things that have really impressed me about the hidden patterns, the subterranean structures, almost like an autopsy of the Zodiac that I want to do here. And to begin with, one of the things that you see when you start studying the Zodiac, there's a certain progression from Aries on through to Pisces. It doesn't really go the other way. And what I mean by that is imagine numbers, for example, the numerals 1 through 12. You don't really think of 12 to 1. You think of there's a progression from 1 up through 12. 
And when you look at Aries, for example, there's something about it that befits the beginning. And then it progresses there. There's that sense of almost like a newborn child. And then it goes on through until you get these much more complex signs. And complex doesn't necessarily mean better. It means just complex. Until you finally get to Pisces, which has this quality to it of like a closing off, a finishing, you might say. Um, and when I was studying with Maura, Maureen Cleary, one of the things that she did that was, I thought, really interesting was she would tell stories in some of the classes that would show the progression from one sign all the way through to the uh, last sign. Like, for example, you could talk about the seasons. You could talk about spring. You could talk about how the year progresses with the seasons going on through to the end. Another way you could do it, you could talk about, like she did the one time, about the growth of a child. And so the Aries represents the infant just kind of springing out into the world, that sense of newness and freshness, but also that self-centeredness that you have with that. And then Taurus becomes a tangibility. It starts feeling things around it and becoming aware of the material world. Gemini becomes a thought process. He's starting to kick in, comparing things, becoming more aware of duality. Cancer is more like a um, becoming more aware of the family system, the family outside of itself. Leo becomes this quality of, of ego that starts to come in, and also creativity in the child. Virgo becomes more of a discriminating, picky sort of energy, and on through the whole zodiac like that. You can tell a story. In other words, it's almost as though there's a narrative embedded in the zodiac, whether you talk about the Hindu zodiac or the, the Western zodiac. It's, there's a sequencing that takes place there. Now, on another level, you can talk about how this, this, it's safe to say this wasn't drawn by Leonardo da Vinci, but um, you, the body parts relate to the zodiac. And this is quite uncanny. It's not random. In other words, it's not as though this was haphazardly thrown together where Capricorn rules the feet and, and uh, Sagittarius rules the head. It's, it ties in very closely to the way the body is structured. A slightly, slightly more artistic version of this from around, I guess, the 1300 or so. Very famous illustration. You see the different zodiacal signs relating to, and there's the ram way up there in the top of the head. And, and each of those body parts becomes a metaphor for that sign in a way. So, for example, Aries is the head, it's the brain, it's the eyes, it's it's what rules the whole body, you might say, and it's the part that you're most aware of. If you say, what part is most you, most Westerners will say the head. Some other cultures might say the heart, and so on. But the head becomes that Aries principle, whereas, let's say, the arms are Gemini, and that relates to you know, that, that sort of ability to grasp and work with things, that dexterity, um, like the opposable thumb that makes humans so supposedly unique. Uh, Pisces is the feet, and the feet are what holds up the rest, and in some sense, the part that becomes most abused, the part of your body that, you know, more or less gets ignored. You know, there's that sense with Pisces that it's, it supports the entirety at the same time that it, we take it for granted in a way, and, and Pisces sometimes feels that way. Um, and so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's an uncanny correlation in terms of how the body parts relate to that. Now, in terms of gender, you can talk about each sign has a gender. So Aries is positive. Taurus is 
negative, and I don't mean negative in a bad sense in polarity, I mean Gemini is positive, so on, and goes on through. It's very similar. The Pythagoreans felt that numbers had a, a gender. So the odd numbers were masculine and the female, and the even numbers were, were feminine. And it's very similar to this. So what does that really mean? Masculine means extroverted. It means more outer-focused. Uh, feminine, polarity, um, means more introverted. It's more aware of the feeling states. And so you look at these signs and the, what are here marked in blue. Uh, Aries, Gemini, Leo, Libra, Sagittarius, Aquarius. Those are the extroverted signs. And you'll see, you can look at someone's chart, by the way. This is a technique I learned years ago. You take a person's horoscope and add up all the major figures that are in masculine or uh, feminine signs. And so, for example, you'll see someone that is, has all their planets, let's say, in the positive polarity signs, and you know that person. It's not good or bad. I don't mean it that way. But you'll see that person is very outgoing. They tend to be much more extroverted. Whereas you'll see some people where virtually all the planets are in the feminine signs, in which case they have a, probably a more active inner life. There's more of a sense of an emotional awareness there. Again, not for better or worse, just different. I think it's good to have a mixture of the two, frankly, but uh, you know, good is relative. It depends on what you do with it. Now, then you have something here, what I call polarity. If you're familiar with Laurel and Hardy, the comedy team from years ago, if someone asked you to describe who Stan Laurel was, could you really do it without also explaining who Oliver Hardy was? In other words, there's part of a dyad there. There's part of a polarity. And each of those two characters is bound up symbiotically in the opposite character. In the same way, Aries is... You don't really understand Aries till you understand its opposite sign, Libra. In a sense, they're like... The Libra is that kind of impulsive, impetuous energy, uh, and courageous, too. It's, you know, everything has its good and its bad side. Whereas Libra, is, it stands back, it weighs things, it's the scales, it's, it's considered indecisive, but it also is probably much more cautious in a good way, too. All these things have different qualities. And every sign is part of a polarity like that. And you don't really understand your sign until you understand the sign opposite. In a sense, you have both in you. Okay? Now, let's go on to the next thing here. The elements, earth, water, air, fire. Every sign is tied up in an elemental constitution as well. There are four different elements, earth, water, air, fire, and they have three different forms. So you don't understand Aries till you understand that it's a fire sign. Fire is the only self-illuminating element that it relates to consciousness, but consciousness in kind of a primal sense. It's not reflective consciousness. It's a little more out there. It's a little more impulsive. But it's different from... Uh, it's, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. We'll get to the cardinal uh, fixed mutable in a second. But the point is that every one of these signs takes on a certain nuance of meaning when you understand the element involved. Um, Now we get to the, what the modalities, the qualities, cardinal fixed mutable. If you're into yogic symbolism, you could talk about Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Uh, it's an interesting correlation. But here again, we have each sign is part of a quaternary of qualities. And so you take Aries, and yeah, it's fire, and so is Leo. But Leo is fixed fire. That's a different kind of fire. 
Aries is cardinal. Cardinal is very initiating. It's very out there. It starts things. So it's it's doubly fiery, shall we say. Whereas Leo was not like that. Leo is the king on the throne. You know, Aries is Achilles that kind of runs out into the battlefield, whereas Leo is the king on the throne that's kind of, you know, fixed as more of like a focused energy for better or worse. And mutable, mutable's much subtler in the sense of it's it's almost like a uh, dissolution. It's more of a malleable energy that's um, flexible, you might say, and that can that can be either a good or a bad thing as well. Now, this is a, a diagram that shows the um, different qualities of cardinal fixed, mutable, the element involved, the polarity involved, and so on. And by the way, one of the interesting things is that Carl Jung also broke things down to the four categories of self. It was very similar to the four elements in a way. And some believe that he got it from the um, astrology, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Then we have the triads. What are the triads? The first few signs, the first four signs of the zodiac, Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, represent the personal triad. The next four signs of the zodiac, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, represent the social triad. And the last four signs of the zodiac, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces, represent the transpersonal zodiac, or the collective zodiac might be a better way to put it. So each sign takes on meaning in terms of its placement within that triad. So again, sticking with Aries just to keep this consistent, we have, it's a very personal sign, whereas Leo is the fire energy that's expressed more in a um, social arena, whereas um, Sagittarius is more of a collective sort of energy. It's more like the professor out in front of a class teaching. Then we get to the hemispheres, which is a whole other aspect, another substructure of the zodiac. We've got the eastern and the western hemisphere, if you divide it down the middle there. In simplest terms, and there's some disagreement about what these hemispheres mean, I'm going to keep it real simple and say that the eastern hemisphere is more subjective, it's more self-oriented, and the Western Hemisphere is more other-oriented. Then we have the Northern and Southern Hemisphere. The Northern Hemisphere, which it's a little deceiving because the way they talk about Northern and Southern, so we'll just talk about the bottom hemisphere here. That's more subjective. It has more to do with, you might say, the private life. And the top hemisphere is more to do with public life. And I'm leaving a lot of subtleties out here just to make it simple, but I think you understand where I'm going with that. And you take those particular hemisphere emphasis and you see some interesting things here, such as you take Leo, which is personal pleasure. It's more subjective private pleasure, like romance or personal creativity. And the opposite sign, getting to the polarity point that we talked about before, that's collective pleasure. That's more impersonal pleasures because it's air. It's like friends getting together for a, a, a party or something like that. Um, so again, these two things, it's, these are all modified by all the things we've been talking about here so far. It's, 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 it's quite brilliant, I think, in terms of how that fits in. 
And you could also take, for example, Scorpio and Taurus. Taurus here is private wealth, is personal wealth, whereas Scorpio is more like a banker, it's collective wealth. You know, you would never think if the signs were all just random, just imagined a random sort of ideas that people projected on the sky, would you ex- expect this sort of order? Is the question I'm raising here. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, and hopefully I won't lose too many people here. These are the classical rulers of the signs. The new rulers that have come in since the outer planets were discovered, they don't discard the old rulers. They're harmonics, you might say, of the old rulers. Like Uranus doesn't displace Saturn, it becomes a a harmonic of Saturn. Pluto doesn't displace Mars, it's a harmonic of Mars. So, you know, you can talk about the classical rulers. These are the visible planets. You have some very interesting patterns going on here. If you'll notice, you've got Saturn ruling those two signs, Jupiter ruling those two signs, Mars ruling those two, Venus ruling those two, Mercury ruling those two, and then you've got the Sun and the Moon relating to uh, Cancer and Leo. This is another way to diagram it. And you see this interesting pattern, which is going to come back here in a few moments. Now let's relate this to the chakras. And this is something that I got through the teachers in Kriya Yoga. It's something that uh, Yogananda taught. Uh, you have these classical chakras. I know that some people, some scholars feel that the chakras are a fairly recent idea in the Hindu system. I don't happen to buy that, but even if it's true, that doesn't negate the importance of the system. The elemental table that we use in science is a recent phenomenon, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work. So it doesn't matter how old it is. It works as a system of psychology and a system of you know, meditation. Uh, the bottom chakra, Muladhara, Second chakra, Svadhisthana. Third chakra, Manipur. Fourth chakra, Anahata. Fifth chakra for the throat, Adam's apple, so to speak. Um, Vishuddha. Then you've got two chakras up here, actually. Yogananda spoke about a dual chakra. The Ajna chakra has two petals. And there's a chakra in the back of the head. You've got uh, Ajna chakra here, and you've got Chandra chakra, which means the moon, in the back of the head. Now, according to the Kriya Yoga system, and it's not just Kriya Yoga, I've seen it in other places, Jeff Green talks about it, David Frawley talks about it, so it's, it's, it seems to have gotten around quite a bit. You can relate those chakras to different planets, some of the classical planets. The bottom chakra, which is the earth chakra, the root chakra, that's Saturn. The second chakra is Jupiter, Svadhisthana, the water chakra. Third chakra is fire, so that's obviously Mars, and you can feel Mars right there. The heart chakra is obviously the Venusian chakra, Venus, and that relates to the element of air. Then you've got the throat chakra, which, like I said, Adam's apple, that's Mercury, and that's uh, the element of Mercury, of, of quicksilver. That's Vishuddha chakra. Then you've got the sun and the moon, which kind of transcend the elements, and you can talk about gold and silver. And uh, Shelley, the teacher I'll talk about here in a second, used to talk about how you know one of the one of the ways of looking at alchemy is the transmuting of lead into gold because this is well this is lead, tin, iron, copper, uh, quicksilver, mercury, uh, gold, and on the back of the head you've got silver. The land of milk and honey is a way to think of it too. Uh, the symbols of the sun and the moon. And you can extend that out. What, what the teachers in the Kriya Yoga and the oral tradition talk about 
is that each of these chakras isn't a single thing. It's got three modalities. It's got a masculine expression to the one side, it's got a feminine expression to the other side, then it's got the balanced expression in the middle. The masculine expression of the, the root chakra is Aquarius. The feminine expression is Capricorn. And then you've got pure Saturn, you might say, in the middle. The second chakra, the masculine side, is... is um, I'll show you the diagram here. Um, the second chakra is... Uh, the masculine side is Sagittarius. The feminine side is Pisces. For the third chakra, the feminine side is Scorpio, the masculine side, masculine meaning extroverted, more outgoing, and uh, is Aries. And the heart chakra, you've got the masculine side is Libra, the feminine side is Taurus. For the throat chakra, the masculine side is expressive Gemini, the feminine side is analytical Virgo. And then you've got this interesting phenomenon here, which is that the sun rules, rules one sign by itself and the moon rules one sign by itself, one chakra by itself. Five dual and two singular. That's the thing I want you to remember. Five dual and two singular. And uh, by the way, I had this up just to show the sun and the moon, the importance of that, the head region, uh, the promised land, so to speak. In other words, if you take the zodiac and simply spin it around so that Leo and Cancer are at the top, you get this extraordinary correlation with the chakras as it was taught on the Kriya Yoga system. I think it's extraordinary. Now, this is this is a little abstract, but I'm going to throw it out. You can digest it if it if it if it uh, works for you. This gets into sacred geometry. Why seven? Why twelve? Why four? You know, what is the point of these things? Is it arbitrary, or is it there's, there's some deeper pattern here? If you take a circle and you take any one point as a starting point on the wheel. Use that as a zero-degree point. You can have seven major angular relationships to that point. Twelve by duality. In other words, you've got one zero-degree point, you've got one 180-degree point, but you've got two 30-degree points, you've got two 60-degree angles, you've got two 90-degree angles, two 120-degree angles, two 150-degree angles. So you've got 12 aspects of which five are dual and two are singular. Do you see what I'm saying here? You've got one zero-degree angle. You've got one 180-degree angle. And you can relate this to a lot of different things, by the way. If you take the notes of the musical scale, for example, you only have one note in a common scale that is relative to itself. That's the note, do. Every other note of the scale is an angle to do, shall we say. If you talk about re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, those are angles to do. If you talk about the chakras, you can say that all the chakras reflect by the reflected shine by the reflected light of the Ajna chakra. This is the point of consciousness right here, and all the other chakras are reflective of that point, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so again, I'm putting this out there as something to reflect on in terms of whether this is an arbitrary system, whether there's something deeper going on here, and this brings us back to our question. Was the Zodiac invented or discovered? Was it just a Rorschach-like reflection of fantasies? Was it just uh, an imaginary construct like somebody looking at clouds and seeing shapes in the clouds? The reason I don't think it's just that is because, as we saw here, you take the meaning of any of these signs and 
you find that the meaning of any one sign is implicated in a broad series of different substructures, different patterns, you know, the opposition polarity pattern, the elemental pattern, the cardinal fixed mutable pattern, and so on. And it's almost as though, like if you take, for instance, a watch, and interestingly, the watch has 12 divisions like the zodiac, and at first it looks fairly simple on the surface, and then you open up the watch and you see this extremely complex network of gears, interlocking gears. That's how the zodiac feels to me. So even if the zodiac is an expression of the human imagination, and that's it. It's right up there with the Mona Lisa, the Sistine Chapel, and in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, in terms of its, its extraordinary work of art. The symmetry, the perfection, the, the intricacy of the sub-patterns to it, to me, make it rank right up there with the greatest of human achievements. But the next level up, another possibility is what Carl Jung would have talked about, Carl Jung described the Zodiac at times as being a repository of all the psychological knowledge of humankind. And the actual quotes that he used, I couldn't find the one that I heard years ago, but I found these two. The starry vault of heaven is in truth the open book of cosmic projection in which are reflected the mythologians, the archetypes. Astrology is of particular interest to the psychologist since it contains a sort of psychological experience which we call projected. This means that we find the psychological facts as it were in the constellations. This originally gave rise to the idea that these factors derive from the stars, whereas they are merely, and this is a very subtle statement he's making here, whereas they are merely in a relation of synchronicity with them. I admit that this is a very curious fact which throws a peculiar light on the structure of the human mind you have to chew on that one a while. So in other words, it could be that the zodiac is a psychological encyclopedia of, of all the different facets of human experience, both inner and outer, if you know how to really analyze it. So that's one other level to it. But what I'd like to suggest is something a little different. Um, maybe it is an indication of something having to do with the fundamental patterns of existence. Maybe the zodiac is possibly a cipher into the cosmic mind. And I should go back to this a little bit here. Uh, by the way, I often get the comment, I, I see it online fairly often, some people say that Carl Jung didn't really believe in astrology as an objective system, that it's really just a psychological thing. But this quote pretty much disproves that. He says right here, I have observed many cases where a well-defined psychological phase or an analogous event was accompanied by a transit, particularly when Saturn and Uranus were affected. That is not a comment of someone who believes the zodiac in astrology is just a psychological projection. He believes there's objective value to it. But now, in terms of what the zodiac really tells us, as an objective sort of I would say, mystical system. Is it a cipher into the mind of God? Is it a cipher into the, the, the universal mind, into the cosmic mind? Um, to understand that, we need to go into some esoteric ideas about how consciousness got to where it is. And one of the ideas that I've learned in, from the oral traditions uh, both Kriyananda and Shelley used to talk about the wisdom in fairy tales and children's nursery rhymes, row, row, row your boat sort of things. Life is but a dream. 
and Humpty Dumpty uh, sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Now, cosmic egg. It falls into time and space and it splinters. There's a fragmentation that takes place when you fall into time and space, into the matrix of time and space. And it's symbolized kind of as a dismemberment in some mythological systems. That's got to hurt. It's very similar to what happens when light passes through a prism, when you suddenly see the splintering effect. It's pure when it goes in, it splinters. And I'm simplifying a very complex set of ideas, so please take that with a grain of salt. Another way that you can express this is with the image of a pyramid. You have the pyramid, which is an extraordinary symbol. There's unity at the top. Everything comes down into four points, four points. Um, and by the way, notice that if you take, you add up the number of lines here, there's three lines for each face. That's 12. You know, there's four sides, but there's 12 points. It's, it really ties into the zodiac in a curious sort of way. Now, so the, there's this differentiation that comes down, this splaying forth of the energy into four, four elements, uh, earth, water, air, fire, this is an alchemical image that shows the four elements indicated down there. It's the old inscriptions that they used to use. Now, this is the teacher. I have to defer to him a little bit on this and give credit where credit is due, but what I'm about to explain is uh, this is a teacher I studied with for many years down in Florida. He, he died almost 20 years ago. He was a disciple of Yogananda's, but I refer to him as a mystic slash Kabbalist slash ceremonial magician slash mad scientist. Uh, extraordinary, very profound figure. Uh, Shelley Trimmer was his name. And he's, he was the go-to guy for esoteric knowledge as far as I was concerned. And he put a lot of emphasis, even though he studied with Yogananda in the Kriya Yoga system, he was almost more of a Kabbalist than he was a yogi. And he put an enormous amount of emphasis on the four-lettered name of God. He felt that that was really a cipher into consciousness. And so you have, for example... You have Moses going to the mountaintop. That's a famous image by, uh, by uh, Chagall. Why he has rabbit ears, I don't know. <laughs> I just noticed that. Um, he goes up to the mountaintop, and he, he sees a burning bush that does not consume itself. And at the top of the bush, Chagall has put the four-lettered name of God. And what Shelley used to say is, if you try to break down consciousness into its basic components, you cannot reduce it lower than four. They're all the same thing, but it's like the, the unity in the Christian tradition. It's their different aspects of the same thing. And you've got those, um, well, I'm going to go back here a little bit. You read it from this direction, Yad, He, Va, He. Two of those are the same. Now, those four letters relate to the four components of consciousness, the observer. And by this, I'm talking about what you're experiencing right now. There's the observer. There's a sense that you're sitting there, you're looking out at the world, which is the observed, thinking that's not you. And that's the two Letters are the same. Why are two letters the same? Because when you're looking at yourself, when you're looking at the world and you think it's something else, but it is really you, it's you looking at you. So it's the same thing. Then you've got the, uh, the idea of the observed or the uh, act of observing and you've got the memory track. Those are the four things. The observer, the observed, the memory track and the um, act of observing which modulates the relationship of the self viewing itself. I know that's a bit abstract, but this is again the the sun and the moon representing the primary duality, the self 
the way Shelley once talked about it in numerical symbolism. He said the self is a one that eternally functions as a two. It's the paradox of is it a unit to your duality? It's both. And quantum physics talks about a similar thing in terms of the observer effect. Is the woman looking at the flower or is the flower really looking at the woman? They're the same thing in terms of what you see is you. Um, and so this gets into a lot of very interesting Kabbalistic ideas. And the self-viewing, the self becomes almost like a perpetual motion, organic perpetual motion uh, creation in terms of you put two mirrors opposite each other and it goes into infinity. That, in a sense, is the nature of self. It's that infinite regress that happens when self views itself. So again, we come back to the four points relating to earth, water, air, fire. Fire becoming the, uh, the observer. Fire, uh, water becoming the observed, the reflective principle. Air, the communication, the messenger of the gods, Hermes principle, that becomes the act of observing. And um, earth becomes the memory track. It becomes the, the record of the experience, which is always fluctuating. And so you see these four signs. Those, the four fixed signs of the zodiac represent those four elements. And this is from the front of Chartres Cathedral where you see uh, Jesus and you see the four fixed signs here. That's the angel, which is uh, one of the symbols for Aquarius. I presume that's the bull. I can't see it up close. That looks like the eagle, which is Scorpio. And this is, is that the, I can't see it from here. That might be the lion. And then you have in Ezekiel, you have uh, the same four creatures that pop up when Ezekiel has his vision. You also have these four creatures come up in Revelations too. There's, it's, it's a common set of symbols and creatures in the Judeo-Christian tradition. So you take these four elements, earth, water, air, fire, and they, be, they complexify to simplify a more elaborate doctrine. And you wind up with this 12-fold system out of the four. In other words, the, the pyramid you, goes down into the, um, into the, the quaternary, but that splits into, you know, other derivations there. So what you wind up with this zodiac, the, what Shelley referred to as the maze of self. That's the mystic phrase he used a lot. He said, we're wandering through the maze of self. And it's represented by your, by your horoscope in a sense. So, but he also would say that we're lost in the maze of self. The reason why we don't know who we are or where we are and why we're here is because we're lost in the maze of self. So how do you get out of the maze of self? And maybe that's a bad way to put it. He would not say get out of it. That's a little dualistic. He would say, how do you solve the maze of self? And one way to think of it is you can look at the pyramid either going down from unity into the quaternary or you can look at it climbing back up the pyramid because we're down here. We're at the base of the pyramid, so to speak. How do you collapse those different elements into the point, which is the all-seeing eye you know, that you see in Masonic symbolism and on your dollar bill in your pocket right now? And that's samadhi. That's where... Samadhi is, is a collecting of a consciousness back to a point. It takes the scattered energies and brings it back to a point. And so in terms of symbolism, this is an image that we used in my book, The Waking Dream. You've got these four creatures representing the four fixed signs of the zodiac. And when you bring them together into one point, they become the tetramorph. It's a little different from the sphinx. 
the Sphinx is, is more Egyptian, but the Tetramorph represents those four creatures. It's got the wings of the uh, uh, eagle, the head of the person, the body of a lion, and the tail of a bull. And so it becomes a symbol of enlightenment. It's, it's similar to the symbol of Mercury and Hermes in a way, the hermaphrodite. Um, it's a little closer up view there. Very profound symbol, a symbol of the awakened self, you might say. And if you look to, this is a fascinating image from the Church of the Living Pillar in Georgia, uh, near Russia. Uh, you have Christ in the middle, you've got the 12 disciples, and each one is related to a zodiacal sign. So this is not some new age idea that's just come up in the last 50 years about the 12 disciples relating to the 12 signs of the zodiac. This is, this is part and parcel of the Christian tradition in some respects, and it's, it's really only in the last, you know, 100 or 200 years that we've lost that connection. You will not see new churches being built, not very often with the zodiacal signs represented, but you see it's, it's, it's such an integral part of the Christian tradition. Um, now, so what am I saying here, if I want to wrap this up a bit? If the zodiac is just an imaginary construct, and that's all it is, it's still an extraordinary work of art, in my opinion, but I think it's much more than that. I really do feel that it expresses something about the cosmic mind, about the divine mind, uh, which is not just outside of you. That's your mind. You know, this is in the esoteric tradition. You've got this notion that, you know, your your mind is the cosmic mind. Your mind is the mind of God as well. Uh, we're co-creators. We're not children of God, so to speak. And that. Someone asked me not too long ago about uh, the fact that the Zodiac seems to have been developed over time. It evolved in stages. It didn't just come all together at once seemingly. In other words, it wasn't some angel that came down and handed it on a stone tablet to people. It wasn't an alien that handed it. It seemed to evolve, which makes it look to some people as though maybe it was thrown together or it wasn't you know, divinely planned in some sense. But my attitude towards that is almost like a Darwinian survival of the fittest of ideas. Why do some ideas stick and some not? When, when humans came up intuitively, I presume, when the mystics or the shepherds, whoever saw these images and put them together, they were intuitively tapping into something. And... I'm suggesting that they're tapping into something fundamental, the fundamental patterns of consciousness, and that if we can reapproach the, the horoscope that way, it takes on a new perspective. Your own horoscope becomes your maze of self and how your chakras are aligned, how your karmas are aligned. The horoscope is a pattern of karmas as well. Um, Every horoscope becomes a repository of memories, a repository of karmas going back many lifetimes, according to the Kriya Yoga tradition. Now, that's really the basics of what I wanted to say. I'm sure you understood everything I said perfectly, especially the last 10 minutes or so. But if you have any questions, please feel free to fire away. Ray, do you or how do you layer in mythology? with all of these elements? Uh, there's a lot of mythology around a lot of these different signs in the um, Babylonian and Greek tradition. And when it moved over to the Greeks, for example, 
uh, it took on its own mythology that was different from the Babylonians. I'm not too familiar with the Babylonian mythology on these things. Uh, and by the way, I didn't mention a colleague of mine, John David Ebert, has an interesting theory, which is if you look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, you see the 12 signs implicated in some of the stories. Now, that's controversial, but it's, I'm putting it out there. It's an interesting idea. If it's true, that would put the zodiac much further back than generally thought. So I think that the zodiacal, the, the mythologies that sprang up around these signs, I personally think it came after the fact. In other words, people saw images in the sky and they constructed stories or they matched those images to existing stories. I don't think we really know for sure. You know, it may be a little bit of the chicken or the egg situation. But uh, clearly, you could, you could talk about the mythology of the Zodiac apart from any of the traditions. Um, for example, um, in the Christian tradition, you have the fishes have taken on a new meaning than they had before. So there's layering that goes on over centuries, if not millennia. So there's not any one mythology that goes with that. I shouldn't mention quickly. Uh, one of the things that makes me dubious about our historical accounts about the Zodiac or any aspects of antiquity is that they're always rewriting history in various ways. This is a, uh, a site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe, which you might have heard of. It's rewriting history because it's monumental architecture that goes back roughly 11 or 12,000 years. And they thought that the earliest monumental architecture was places like Babylon or Stonehenge or Egypt. And this is way before that. They've only excavated a very small part of this site. And it'll be very interesting to see if anything shows up that is astrological or zodiacal or just anything relating to the sky. And I'm sure there will be, but they've just started to excavate it. And you can go on YouTube and find lots of very interesting videos about this. It's an extraordinary find. But it's, it's part of the reason why, like I said, when people say, well, the Zodiac really came together in 475 in Babylon, well, maybe it did, but that could turn around overnight if they find some new cuneiform you know, tablet that has something that goes back two or 300 years before that. So... I'm very open-minded about those sorts of things. Now, I don't know if I answered your question at all about the mythologies. Yeah, it's it's not a it's not a there's not a simple answer to that. I don't think. I have a couple questions. Um, one of them is when you were drawing those angles, is Aries zero degrees, and then Pisces would be thought of as 180 degrees? In terms of planets, you can relate and you can relate the zero degrees to the sun. And you can relate the 180 degrees to the moon. And the others splay out from there. And Mars would be the 90 degree angle. Mercury would be the 30 degree angle. Venus would be the 60 degree angle. Jupiter would be the 120. And Saturn would be the 150. And the reason why Saturn isn't the 180 is because Saturn is the way. I asked Shelley about this 30 years ago. And he said because Saturn is the furthest point away on the wheel from the zero degree point from the the sun. So you can't relate it strictly to the, the zodiacal signs in in a you can't just overlay it precisely that way. It's a little more complex than that. But it's a good question. And then when you were sh- showing the four <coughs> fixed signs as representing the angel and the eagle 
and the bull and the lion. Yeah. Why did they use the four fixed signs? Uh, when I asked Shelley that, he said it's because it's the, the, the fixed signs are the ones that are closest to, like, that's actually one of the reasons I brought up that point about, uh, Shiva, Vishnu, and, and, um, Brahma. That Brahma is the initiating principle. It's that which expresses out. Whereas Vishnu is the solidifying principle. It relates more to, in the qualities, you know, you talk about Rajas, Sattvic, uh, Tamasic. Rajas would be cardinal, Sattvic would be fixed, and um, Tamasic would be mutable. And so the fact that it's fixed makes it the most Sattvic of the signs. I'm trying not to lose you with these terminologies if you don't know them. But so fixed signs are the, the most Sattvic of the signs. I mean, which gives them more power, but also more potential for problems. You know, it's, it's, there's a, there's a certain will, power of will with the fixed signs, that uh, sustaining principle that you don't have with cardinal or mutable to the same degree. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it's the best I can do. Any, any other questions? We are also taking questions from people online, if you can email us. But uh, anyone else here that I'm not seeing? While we're waiting, let me mention one other thing. Right now, uh, this is April for those watching this in archival form. Right now, uh, this is a very intense month, as you probably have heard by now. It's uh, April is quite a bang-up month in terms of the stars and the planets. And it chiefly, but not strictly, involves uh, Aries and Capricorn. And it's actually all the cardinal signs, and there's other things going on too. But the point is that you can relate it to what we're talking about here in the sense of you've got Uranus and Aries, which is a fire sign. It's very active. You've got Pluto and Capricorn, which is Earth. And Capricorn is authority figures. It's established structures. So you've got this tension happening that's coming to a head this month in a pretty big way. It could also be earth changes, earthquakes, that sort of thing, and that's been predicted for quite some time before the ones that are occurring uh, down south. And so you've got this tension happening between two of the zodiacal signs, between Aries and Capricorn, and that can produce a lot of, and this has been going on for several years, it can produce a lot of upheavals in terms of... Um, protesting, for example, in terms of overturning structures, uh, in terms of structures trying to overturn militant uprisings, that sort of thing. And it's watch this next month. And if you really want to get mystical about it, watch your chakras this next month because these things activate in terms of your chakras. Some people are going to be more affected than others by this. The cardinal signs, which is Cancer, Capricorn, Libra, and uh, Aries, they're probably going to feel it more. They also get the benefits of it more in terms of the breakthroughs that can happen with it. So it's, it's not all good or bad. But if you watch your spinal energies, you can feel when these things hit in terms of like, especially with Aries, Aries being there in the gut. You will feel when this aspect hits later in the month, if you're paying attention, you will feel something going on around the gut point there. Uh, and then something down lower on the chakras because of the Capricorn emphasis. So... Your chakras light up not only in terms of how your chart is being affected, but in terms of how the collective energy is activating. Any other questions? Anything uh, typed in there? 
Okay. Any other questions? I have a few other things I can say, though, if we don't. Nothing else? Okay, let me say a couple other things here. Um, like I said, I didn't get into a, a very important thing about the sidereal versus the tropical zodiac because it's very technical, but I'll just say a couple of words about this. Starting around the time of Christ, you had this separation that started happening between the tropical zodiac, which is based on the seasons, the four seasonal points of first day of spring, first day of summer, first day of fall, first day of winter. The zodiac that astrologers in the West primarily use has nothing to do with the stars. That's quite shocking to some people that don't know astrology. It has to do with a mathematical system that is based around the seasonal points, whereas sidereal astrology is actually based upon the stars themselves. And those two have been slowly shifting because of precession of the equinoxes about a degree every 72 years, so that now the one is displaced about 23, 24 degrees from the constellation zodiac, so about every seven years or so, you have scientists coming out and talking about how astrologers aren't aware of this and how people have the wrong sign, that some people are actually the previous sign than they thought they were. And astrologers are aware of it. They're just using a different zodiac. They're not using the same one that was used um, 2,000 years ago, although some sidereal astrologers <laughs> still use it, and the Vedic astrologers, the Hindu astrologers, do still use the, the constellations, the sidereal zodiac. Um, when you mentioned the sidereal and um, being interested in archaeology myself, um, the sky as the Egyptians saw it is different than what we see today. Um, and the, um, the difference, you, you, were, you mentioned that the uh, Aries and Pisces were not defined as they are now? 2,000 years because ago, the two zodiacs were pretty much back-to-back. They were very close, so there wasn't really a discrepancy, whereas it's slowly been moving apart. Mm-hmm. So that what is Pisces in the sidereal system is slightly ajar from where it is in the tropical system. But yeah. cavemen and ancient Egyptians saw a different sky than we do today, Yes. or than even 2,000 years ago. Right. What, what is? I'm not sure I get the point you're making. So does that that account for that difference in the um, either the mythology or assigning of you know the Egyptians saw a ram when we didn't? I don't the think. Yeah. Didn't. I don't think those are connected really. Um, I don't think that had to do with the displacement at all, and I'm sure that other. Cultures in the past have had different images associated with the constellations. And by the way, not every culture saw pictures for the constellations. Some traditions just looked at the individual stars. It's it's a misconception to think that all previous cultures projected images, pictures on the constellations. But I'm sure that if you could go back, that's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by the uh, Gobekli Tepe Finding. If we can find some evidence, and there's already theories about this. Andrew Collins is saying that he sees Cygnus as relating, the constellation of Cygnus as being related to the monuments there. It's too early to tell. But I'm very anxious to see if they find anything at that site that indicates how they saw the stars. I don't doubt that there's constellations in there somehow or stars, 
but we can't decipher it yet. There's not enough that's uncovered. They'll be uncovering this for the next 50 to 100 years probably. It's such a massive site. It was all buried at the time for some reason around 9000 BC. Like I say, you can find lots on the internet about that. Any, uh, any other questions? Okay, thanks for coming, folks.